Church, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 today. We continue this series that we began earlier this month. Walking through the book of Acts, just chapter by chapter, looking at the story of the church. We spent the first half of this year looking at uh, the story of Jesus and the Gospel of Luke, and now we're in the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, this book known as the book of Acts. It's often called the Acts of the Apostles, but what we've said is uh, the book of Acts is really uh, God's story of how the apostles and the early church, by their testimony and by the power of the Spirit, and that they went out proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they radically changed the world. We are here today standing on the shoulders of giants like the Apostle Paul and the uh, Apostle Peter, men who were so radically changed by the resurrected Christ, they, they could not help but speak about what they'd seen and heard, and their witness went out into all the world, and we are here today because of their faithfulness. It's good for us to be reminded that, that this didn't begin with us, that we are building upon the foundation that the apostles and the prophets laid. It's necessary for us to come back to that reminder time and time again. And so here in Acts chapter 4, what we see is Peter continues, Peter and John continue to proclaim the good news that there is life in Jesus Christ. There is resurrection life. There is eternal life to be found through faith in Jesus Christ. But they come for the first time here in Acts chapter 4 to an audience that is not exceptionally happy about their preaching. This is when persecution begins to rise up against the church. And for the last 2,000 years, the primary response of culture after culture after culture to the preaching of the gospel has been one of persecution. We are among the few over the last 2,000 years that have been able to meet freely, to speak freely of Christ, even though we often remain silent. We are among those who have not just one Bible, but many of us own multiple copies of God's Word and can read it freely, though we often choose not to do so. And as we look at this today, this, this beginning of persecution that we're going to see abounding more and more as we move into the book of Acts, as the gospel abounds, persecution abounds. That's what you see. As the gospel is going forth, those who are opposed to the gospel go forth against the gospel. That's what you see. It's the regular rhythm of God's work in the world. And it begins right here in Acts chapter 4. So we saw last week in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John, this dramatic miracle of, uh, of uh, healing a man who had been lame from birth. He had never walked in all of his 40 plus, plus years on this planet until the day when Peter and John, who were going up to the temple for prayer, came across this man who was, who was begging for a handout there at the temple gate, and they gave him so much more than a handout, they literally gave him a hand up and enabled this man who had never walked before to walk. And you would think that that would just be a cause for great rejoicing among everyone. And it was among most of the people except for the religious leaders. Because like Jesus so often did, the apostles, his followers, were stealing the thunder 
of the religious leaders, and they were unhappy. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, if you'll stand in honor of God's word this morning. Peter and John have been preaching as a result of that miracle of raising the lame man, giving him the ability to walk, explaining God's power among his people. And it says in verse 1 that as they were speaking to the people, right in the midst of their sermon, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, and that was probably an understatement, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The church continues to multiply. And in verse 5, And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priest, priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Father, what we just read in your word, spoken by the mouth of your servant Peter, is one of the most hated thoughts in all of Scripture. That there is only one way of salvation, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Lord, you know that we live in a culture that despises that very thought. But Lord, may we, as Peter, be bold and not shy away from this truth that has been given to us, that has been imparted to us, that our eyes have been opened to see your glory in this gospel. May we not water it down. May we not deliver only the parts that are palatable. But may we be faithful as Peter was to speak your truth in love, believing that you, our God, will rescue some by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here, Peter is preaching and explaining to the people how it was that a man who had been lame from birth, now 40 plus years old, is now able to walk, and not just walk, but the Bible says he was walking and leaping and praising God. 
And all the people saw him and knew this was the God that I always said for all these years had been laid day by day by day. Every day they went, they went up to the temple to pray. They saw the same man laying there at the gate and many would ignore him, but they would hear his cries that, they, that he would get a hand out. And they, they were wondering, how in the world is this possible? And Peter lays out for them at the end of chapter 3 exactly what God had done in this moment, that this was the power of God on display. And again, there was much rejoicing until the religious leaders showed up. Again, we've talked about how Acts is the continuing ministry of Jesus through his apostles and through his church. And so the same kinds of things that were happening to Jesus, opposition from the religious leaders, are the same kinds of things that were happening in the early church. And by the way, church, it's the same kinds of things that we should expect if we're being faithful with the gospel. There's a place in which suffering and persecution is a reminder that we are being faithful to the Lord. And the fact that we don't experience much of that in our culture speaks to the fact that the church has in many ways fallen away from these things. So Peter says, there's only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And that's what I've taken as the title of today's message, The Only Name. And I want you to think about today, what is it that we're doing as a church? We have been given by God a message to proclaim. And it is a singular message. There is, there is a very great clarity to this thing called the gospel. And I hope to bring clarity to it again once again today. But I want you to understand today, we have been given a singular mission. Now we can find the church in America today doing all kinds of things, all kinds of, of social ministries and all kinds of activities for, for families and all kinds of outreach events. We can find the church doing all kinds of things. But we have been called to one singular task. We have been called to be proclaimers of a message, a singular message. And it's not one that we've made up, it's, been one, it's one that's been given to us. And Peter here, in Acts chapter 4, outlines the basics of what we have been called as the people of God to proclaim, what has been proclaimed by faithful churches for the last 2,000 years. There's only one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So what do we proclaim about him? First of all, as Christ's church, we proclaim the reality of the resurrection. This is central. This is so important that we understand that our proclamation is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That is so central. I love what Tony Morita said. He said the apostles, they were not preaching rules. There's far too many pulpits today that are preaching rules and morality. That's not what we need. The apostles, they were not preaching rules. They were preaching resurrection. Read through the book of Acts and see how many times he ties together their witness with the resurrection. They were witnessing primarily about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, that he died on the cross, but if he just died on the cross and didn't rise from the dead, then he's a dead Messiah. And that's not good for any of us. That does no good for any of us whatsoever. 
They were preaching resurrection. Likewise, in our preaching and teaching, we dare not commend a set of moral rules to make people more acceptable before God. That's what every other religion in the world does. Hear me. Every other religion in the world commends some set of rules to make us more acceptable to God. Christianity says we are completely unacceptable to God and rules won't fix it. Rules show us our need for something greater. They show us our need for a Savior. He is our message, and He, Jesus Christ, is our theme. And so we say once again today that the resurrection is crucial to Christianity. We are utterly wasting our time this morning if the body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is laying in a grave, rotting somewhere just outside of Jerusalem. If you come to Christianity for some other set of morality, for a list of rules of do's and don'ts so that, that God will be happy with you, you're missing it. There's so much more that God has for you than that. And it all rises and falls on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching. The question is, not, is whether or not he rose from the dead. And that's the question that you have to wrestle with. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to I encourage you with this. There is only one question that matters. Did he defeat the grave or not? It doesn't matter what you think about anything else. It doesn't matter what you think about the virgin birth until you settle that. It doesn't matter what you think about how the world was created until you settle that. It doesn't matter about so many other doctrinal issues until you settle this issue. Did he rise from the grave or not? Because if he rose from the grave, then all else that he said bears immense weight on all of our lives. But if he died just like the rest of us are looking toward death, if he died just like every other person that's ever lived on the planet, if his death was final then none of the rest of it makes any difference. You say, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't we still have better lives if we lived according to the Bible's moral instructions? Well, yeah, maybe. But what good is it if it's only for this life? Even the Apostle Paul, the greatest preacher of the gospel, except for Jesus himself, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That word in vain means worthless. We are wasting, you are wasting your time this morning. You would have been better off to sleep in than to, than to come out this morning and hear preaching that, that has nothing to do with your eternity. If, our pre if he's not been raised and our preaching is vain, even worse, your faith is in vain. You are believing in something. In fact, Paul goes on to say, we're the most pitiful creatures on earth if we're proclaiming a risen Christ and yet his body's still in the grave. Again, I want to say to you this morning, the biggest question that matters today is did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Because our greatest enemy is sin and death. And our greatest need is not for more economic resources or better education. 
Our greatest need is not for stronger political leaders or better governmental systems. Our greatest need is that someone would show us how to defeat our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And the truth of the resurrection matters because if Christ has been raised, then we can too. See, that's what matters. In fact, when you see what, what Peter was proclaiming here and what they were upset about, he was proclaiming not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but look at the text there. He was proclaiming that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead. So not just that Jesus has been raised, but he was proclaiming that because Jesus has been raised and defeated the grave, that all who trust in him will do the same. All who turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus have the hope of eternal life in him. Like he says, Paul says in Colossians 2, that having been buried with him in baptism, baptism being this, this picture of being buried with Christ and then raised to newness of life, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of Christ, who raised him from the dead. So we identify with Christ, yes, in his cross, that he died for our sins there, but even more so, we identify with Christ in his resurrection. That because he defeated death, that those who are in Christ, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that we are trusting him to raise us as well. That death will simply be a doorway to eternal life for those who trust in Christ. And so this teaches us that real saving faith is faith in the risen Savior. Church, we need not forget that. We are not just trusting in a crucified Christ. We are trusting in a risen Savior. Now both of those are essential, and I don't want to put one over the other, but I need to remind us again that He is risen. That's what we're staking our faith on, that He rose from the dead. He defeated death, and so we can as well through Him. Romans ten seventeen a great reminder that we need week by week. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Because of the evidence of Scripture and because of the evidence of history. Because of eyewitnesses, hundreds in number, who saw him after he died on the cross. And they believed it so much they gave their lives for it, didn't they? Those early believers were giving their lives for what they believed. I don't know many people that will give their lives for a lie. They believed, they knew, they had seen the risen Christ and it was worth everything. So we proclaim the reality of the resurrection. Again, number two, as Christ's church, we proclaim the authority of the author of life. I want you to imagine what Peter and John are encountering here in Acts chapter 4. Now, he only mentions a handful of folks, but later on, it talks about the fact that they were, they were uh, being interrogated by what was known as the Sanhedrin. Now, now the Sanhedrin was Israel's supreme court. 
But there weren't just a handful of justices in the Sanhedrin, and there were actually 71. It was modeled after the instructions in Numbers chapter 11, where the Lord instructed Moses, and he said, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Moses' father-in-law was used of God to tell Moses, Hey, dude, it's not a good thing that you're trying to lead this all by yourself. You need some others to come alongside you and do this work together. It's the same kind of reason why we as a church have, have adopted a, a plurality of elders. This is the model of Scripture. It was never meant to rise and fall on one man unless that man is Jesus. And so here, this same pattern, though, is what was happening in the New Testament days. They created this thing called the Sanhedrin after the Old Testament uh, picture, and it was 70 religious leaders plus the high priest, so 71. And when they gathered, you can picture in your mind a series of concentric semicircles that they set in. And, and when they brought someone up for trial uh, at the Sanhedrin, if you had to appear before them, they would put you right in the middle of the semicircle. And so you have 71 of the most powerful men in Israel staring you down. In fact, so much so that most people, when they would have to appear before the Sanhedrin, would appear before them in sackcloth and ashes in a, in a state of mourning and contrition, but not Peter and John. They were not intimidated by this group of religious leaders. But notice their question. Look at verse 7. As they are calling them to account, in verse 7, they set them in their midst and they inquired. And listen to the question. This is such a great question. By what power or by what name did you do this? Why are you doing what you are doing? Who said you had the right to preach? The Sanhedrin was given authority over the teaching that took place there in the temple. And as Peter and John were, were preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Christ, here was the key question. The Sanhedrin puts it before them, and then Peter uses it as, as a diving board to jump right in to the gospel. The key question is this, who's in control here? You see, the, the, these, these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they believed they were in control. Who told you you could preach here? Who gave you the authorization to say these things? And they were especially ticked off at what? They were especially ticked off at the fact that they were preaching resurrection from the dead in Jesus. Remember, the Sanhedrin, this is the same group of men who a couple of months earlier called for the crucifixion of Jesus himself. And so they're not real happy that now some of Jesus' followers are proclaiming that the guy that they sent to the cross a couple of months ago is now by, it's by power, his power, that people are being, the lame are being led to walk. And there's going to be more miracles to come, by the way. They're not real happy that Jesus, that they thought they had done away with, is now becoming central once again. By the way, this question is the same one that the religious leaders asked Jesus in Luke chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and, and preaching the gospel, same thing that we see Peter and John doing in Acts chapter 4, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders came to him and they said, tell us, by what authority do you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Same question. And by the way, I want to say to us this morning, 
This is one of the most important questions in your entire life. This is one of the most important questions in the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl that walks the face of this planet. Who is in control of your life? And let me tell you this morning that there are ultimately only two options as to how you will answer that question ultimately. Either you have surrendered control of your life to the one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Turning from your sin and trusting in Him, you have surrendered your life to Him. Not just once, but once and for all. Or you continue to be in the driver's seat of your life. And by so doing, you will face the wrath and the judgment of God. You say, Pastor, that sounds really harsh. I hope it doesn't sound any more harsh than what Peter says to him right here. When he says, hey guys, remember that Jesus that you guys crucified? He's the one who's causing lame men to walk now. And by the way, he's doing something greater. He's raising people from the dead right and left as they are turning from their sinful rebellion against God and they are coming to faith in God through Jesus Christ. You see here, church, Peter does not steer clear of conviction. And far too often we do. He's not fearful, is he? I mean, imagine he is standing in front of the 71 most powerful men there in that community. They had the right to call for his crucifixion just as they had for Jesus's. But they, they instead, he, he says to them, hey, remember this Jesus you crucified? Yeah, that's the one who's performing these miracles. It's not us. He is instantly turning their gaze toward Christ. And even so much so that he offers them an implied invitation. Verse 12, when he says to them, there's no other name given under heaven, given, given among men by which we must be saved. He is saying to them, will you trust Jesus too? It sounds almost ridiculous. He's the one on trial, but he is calling them to faith in Christ. This is not the last time we'll see this, by the way. The same thing happens in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. These men were not afraid, not because they were exceptionally courageous in and of themselves, but because the power of the Holy Spirit was there. Notice it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered the witness of these apostles and of the early church. And their witness was this, 2 Corinthians 4. What we proclaim is not ourselves. Church, let's be remembered, what we, reminded what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Our proclamation is Him, and we're proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, that we surrender ourselves to Him, that we have been trusting all that we are to all that He is, turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. And finally... We proclaim the reality of the resurrection, the authority of the author of life. And as Christ's church, we proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel. Now I know as soon as I say this, this is probably the most unwanted and hated doctrine of any that we find in the scriptures today. When we say today as the church, Jesus is the only way of salvation. There are a lot of folks in our culture that get really mad really quick. 
When you say Jesus is the only way to God, you immediately become in that moment, in the, in the eyes of our culture that loves tolerance so much, you immediately become a narrow-minded bigot when you say things like that. But church, we have to say things like that. We have to proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus is the only way to God, first of all, because Jesus did. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John 14, 7, he doesn't say, oh yeah, and there's this other back door that you can go through if you want to. No, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 3, 16, we all know it, don't we? It proclaims the exclusivity of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The implication of John 3.16 is the way to eternal life is, is through Jesus alone. That's the only way to avoid the perishing and the eternal separation from God. John 3.36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These are all the words of Jesus. He is proclaiming that he is the one way of salvation. But it's not just Jesus. The apostles do the same. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the apostle Paul reminds us that in, in the case of those who are lost, he says, in their case... The God of this world, that being Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, from seeing what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. To keep them from seeing Christ who is the way of salvation. 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul says, For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Again and again and again, the, the word proclaims these truths. Romans 3, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we all know Romans 3, 23, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only hope for sinners like us is a Savior like Jesus. But I want you to know, church, there are two main opponents to the exclusivity of the gospel in our culture today. The first one is what's called pluralism. Pluralism teaches that ultimately the, the path of everyone's life, all roads are leading to the same place ultimately. All roads lead up the mountain. So if you want to go the Christian way, then go the Christian way. If you want to go the Buddhist way, go the Buddhist way. If you want to go the Hindu way, the New Age way, the science way, whatever way you want to go, just go that way. Go that way sincerely. Just commit your life to whatever that is. But ultimately, all roads will lead to the same place. And that's the main teaching of our culture today. Pluralism. All roads are ultimately going to lead to the top of the mountain. Whatever your vision of God and heaven is, they'll all ultimately, even if you don't believe in that, all roads are going to the same place. That's the main idea of our culture today, and that's where we get uh, this obsession with tolerance and, in, and inclusivism. By the way, the second idea that runs contrary to the gospel in our culture today is this idea of inclusivism. Inclusivism is just a little farther toward the gospel 
than that of pluralism. But inclusivism says, well, we know that the Bible says Jesus is the only way, but there's, there's a back door. There's a John 14, 7, if you will. And perhaps there are some that, that while they're not really trusting in Jesus, they're really earnest in their faith. They're really good Buddhists. They're really faithful Hindus. They're really honest Muslims. And surely God's going to look at that and, and going to look at their sincerity and their honesty and their, and their faithfulness to their own uh, way of life. And surely God's going to look at that. And in the end, God's going to go, you know what? They did the best they could with what they had. So y'all come on into my kingdom. Now folks, beware, it sounds awfully good in the culture in which we live. Here's the one problem that is not the truth of God. When Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, that is not an optional verse that we can take it or leave it however we want to. So why do we proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel? Why do we proclaim that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Let me give you three thoughts as we close this morning. I know this is unpopular, but it's necessary. And it's a part of the gospel we cannot afford to put on the back burner or write out altogether. First of all, by proclaiming the exclusivity of the gospel, we love God rightly. Church, let's be reminded this is His truth. I didn't write this. You didn't write this. And we have no right to rewrite this either. This is God's truth. You say, well, there are things in the scriptures that I don't like. Join the club. If God had to do everything that you and I think is right and good and just and the way it should be, he would no longer be God, we would. Which, by the way, is what the sinful heart desires. So kind of check yourself in that place as I've had to do. We have been called to proclaim the truth of God. Peter is being faithful here in Acts chapter 4. The question is, will the church be faithful to the same gospel today? Our highest calling, Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And to love God with all our mind means we're going to have to be diving into the Word of God day by day, growing in the truth of God, that we might faithfully proclaim that truth to a lost and dying world. Secondly, by proclaiming the exclusivity of the gospel, we love others rightly. It is not loving to tell them less than the truth. It is not loving for us to proclaim a false gospel that says, well, we know the Bible says Jesus is the only way, but there's probably a back door as well. We know God is gracious and loving, and he'll probably just let some folks in because they were really sincere. It's not the gospel, church. It's a watered-down fakery. The second commandment, this is just like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The word of God holds together with the great commandment and is fulfilled by our obedience to it. And finally this morning, we proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel that Jesus is the only way because by doing so, we keep the great commission. And that's what we've been entrusted with that we would go into all the world, into all the nations, 
and that we would make disciples of Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what? And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And part of that all is this currently unpopular truth of the gospel that Jesus is the only way of salvation. If we're going to fulfill the Great Commission in our day, we're going to have to be reminded that there are, all the roads aren't going to lead to the same place. And there is no back door. There is only one door. His name is Jesus. And if we're not going to enter in through Him, then we cannot be saved. But the way is open. The way is open. This is the inclusivism of the gospel. It's, ex it's exclusive in that Jesus is the only way, but it's inclusive in that all who would come to God through Him are welcome to come. The only dividing line the only dividing line that we are putting forth as the church is those who will trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior and those who will not. We are erasing every other dividing line. All socioeconomic dividing lines, all educational dividing lines, all political dividing lines, all dividing lines of race and gender and ethnicity, all those dividing lines are meaningless in light of the gospel. But the one that we must maintain is that you will either trust in Jesus or you will not. And that will determine that which is most important, which is where you will spend your eternity. And so I'll leave you with Colossians 1. It is Him we proclaim. Not rules and regulations, not moral living, not moralistic teachings, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom why that we might present everyone mature in Christ. This is our goal, this is our mission. May God help us to be faithful to it. Would you pray with me?